Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For people with, you know, kind of that, I don't want to say true ADHD, because it it really, I think, is an evolving concept, but this idea that the brain isn't getting the trigger to add in the extra components that it needs to stay on task. And that, for many people, has kind of historic tracking, where they can relate to that in adolescence, they can recognize when it happened um, as young children, but situationally, it's really intense because everything else is adding in our environment to amplifying how significant it is. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD, and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. All right, before we get started, I would love to share with you this review from a listener named Stevie HH on the Apple podcast platform in the UK. It's entitled Hugely Helpful. After my son was first seen for ADHD, still not completed three years later as I failed to put together the long list of written evidence requester, and experiencing serious impairment in an otherwise highly successful career, and going to talks on neurodiversity by chance, I twigged. I've managed to have myself referred, not really worrying about speed, I know the answer, but a diagnosis is helpful for getting my children to see it positively in themselves, and I'm determined to finalize my son's diagnosis. Listening to these podcasts has been hugely helpful. Understanding problems I've faced through my life and realizing it's not me failing repeatedly. Understanding what is seen as a superpower is one, but can also break you as you get older and take on everything to an insane degree. Massively appreciated. Well, thank you, Stevie. I feel like your experience is so common, and this review is very timely given this week's episode, which we will get into in a moment. But first, 
Thank you for submitting this review. And I'm so glad to hear these interviews have been helpful in understanding your brain. So here we are at episode 163, in which I interview McCall Letterly. Now, McCall is QB Tech's head of commercial operations in North America, where she's responsible for the regulatory, research, and clinical operations in the U.S. QB Tech is a leading provider of objective ADHD tests designed to help clinicians around the world measure ADHD symptoms more accurately. McCall and I talk about how QB Tech is working with clinicians around the world to develop and implement objective, standardized ADHD testing for children and adults. We also talk about some of the gaps in our healthcare systems and various ways to improve ADHD management and care. And we also talk about some of the global cultural differences that affect how clinicians are viewing ADHD diagnosis and management and how therapists are also using QB Tech testing to help guide their treatment plans. Now, I just loved this conversation with McCall. You're going to love it too. It's just, she's fantastic. Um, But I have to add that after our incredible conversation, I was able to take the QB check test at home. It wasn't an official test because I wasn't under the care of a clinician, but I was able to give it a bit of a test drive. And I have to say, I thought I did very well on the test. So naturally, I was terrified that it was going to come back that I do not, in fact, have ADHD. I spent three days between actually completing the test and getting my results spiraling, worrying that I might have to shut down the podcast because it maybe, you know, it turns out I don't have ADHD and what is this going to say about my future in this field? And I had to laugh at my, the way in which I completely spiraled after taking this test. So anyway, it turns out once I got the results, not only do I have ADHD, but it turns out I am hella ADHD. So it was really fun to take the test. But again, this test is only available for clinicians. So if you want to take the QB test or the QB check, you do need to take it with the guidance of a professional. That said, again, I had a really great conversation with McCall and I am so excited for you to hear it. So here it is. Hi, McCall. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Katie. Great to join you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so normally I start out my podcast asking my guests about their adult diagnosis journey or their or you know their der- journey into an ADHD diagnosis. But we're going to start this a little differently because you do not have ADHD. You're one of my, I, I could count on one hand, I think the number of guests I've had who are in the ADHD world doing really, really passionate work for AD, you know, with ADHD clients and around ADHD research, but don't actually have ADHD themselves. So how did you get involved in this particular work where where did your interest in ADHD stem from? Yeah, I appreciate it. It's it comes from probably organically the same place most of your guests find it, which is frustration in identifying ADHD in and of itself and finding the right providers and connecting the right stream of people. I came from a family where I had a sibling that really really struggled, so this is back in the early 80s to find the right diagnosis. Now, this was a a male sibling of mine, but I think a lot of the problems, at least in early identification, uh, tend to be the same across both groups. And my brother really, really struggled. And my mother struggled to put together a team of people that really understood what was going on. And back in the day, I think less was understood about it. So she ended up having to become her son's advocate, having to put together her own team of providers. And I watched this struggle year over year over year and how much it just, you know, it drains the soul and the family. And it's it's a lot to, to put together. But then I've seen what happens when the right team comes together. 
and the right identification comes and the right education around ADHD and the difference in what that kind of takes off and soars for an individual. And I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And so I've, I've been really fortunate to align myself with a company. I got into the clinical world. So I have a, a master's in clinical mental health. I focused and trained within ADHD and worked in multidisciplinary teams. But then I've gotten really lucky in my career to be part of a company that shares that almost identical mission. So we're a privately held company and it's a core value of ours because the owners and early investors in our company have almost the same story as me. Very, very different stories between a proper diagnosis and a delayed and misdiagnosis. And so it's been a pleasure for the last decade to work with them and really try to change what's happening for ADHDers and how they're diagnosed and especially women because this is such a unique group. Right? Yeah. I mean, I I was diagnosed around three years ago. So in 2020, at the, relatively at the beginning of the pandemic, I was 45. I started this podcast shortly after. In fact, I've admitted on this podcast before that I started the podcast before I was officially diagnosed and was terrified that I didn't actually have ADHD. And through the course of this podcast, we talk a lot about the same topics, or at least I do, which is, is this really ADHD? Like, there's so much self-doubt involved in this diagnosis. And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with lack of, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, formulaic testing, right? Like I had a half hour conversation with my GP and she was like, yeah, you have ADHD. And that was it. And I've often wished I had a certificate or a card or something I could pull out of my wallet when I was second guessing, you know, what this was, whereas my children had the four hour psych assessment, all of the Woodcock Johnson, all of those brief tests. And I've heard other people refer to the conversation with the GP as a soft diagnosis. (laughs) So it's definitely something I think a lot of us relate to, which is even if we do get diagnosed by a medical professional, the doubt still lingers, right? And then the other side is with online testing, there's that feeling of, did I just pay for this diagnosis and they just want my money, right? So are other, I don't feel like there are other diagnoses that feel this confusing and problematic in terms of the self-report and the self-diagnosis leading to the official diagnosis. Like sometimes it just really feels like the wild west out there. So (laughs) you're highlighting, uh, I love this. You're highlighting so many themes that we see. So I work with thousands of clinicians uh, across the country And, you know, what you're kind of identifying is one, the first, the validation, right? Like there is such an element where, you know, you question, there's so many overlapping symptoms to other disorders, you know, anxiety and depression create inattention and it creates elements of impulsivity and forgetfulness. And you do wonder and doubt yourself and women do that more so than men most often. And that validation piece is so important. The other thing you're really highlighting is There is no clear direction in our healthcare system as to who the right person to go to is. Like, who is the doctor that is the one that gives you the proper diagnosis and how does that work? And we really see that patients struggle to kind of navigate that. And it's different for children than it is for adults. You know, you're identifying such a late in life diagnosis that I'm sure you probably feel would have been really beneficial to know uh, way in advance. Um, But that's really where I think, you know, we're pushing for and I'm pushing for such a change in 
where we recommend people to go, who the right people are and providing clarity so that that validation comes much sooner than you've experienced. Mm -hmm. Right. I know. And I think, you know, you just reminded me of the the brain scans too, which I'm not going to go on a whole tirade about those, but, (laughs) Um, but, you know, and I was, I remember also reading a study on some like African tribes that had diverted into an agrarian tribe and more of a nomadic tribe. And they had tested each of the tribe members for ADHD. And there was like, had done a genetic test for some sort of gene. And I was like, wait, what is the, all I got out of that study was what is this gene and why wasn't I tested for it? Right? Like, (laughs) Yeah. Like I really, the really, the need for, what is the word I'm looking for? I keep missing it. The unification or standardization. Yes. Standardization. And what we really encourage is objectivity. So what you've kind of highlighted is, you know, you had a 30 minute consult with your GP, which usually involves like a clinical interview. So you're going through history and background and the GP is trying to use their expertise to put together your symptoms in the context and try to identify where is this organically coming from. And some professionals are really well-trained in that and have a lot of experience, but a lot of professionals have not had a ton of training in ADHD. And so they're trying to navigate and put together these pieces when there isn't kind of standardization across all types of providers, nurse practitioners, GPs, pediatricians, psychiatry. And so what you're talking about is like, you know, so many people say like, where is the test? that tells me the blood test or the brain scan that tells me this is what it is, because we know that individuals have to kind of check boxes, right? So you've got this subjective checklist that you go through, and sometimes you even question yourself. And we find that patients tend to be very poor self-raters, especially when they have ADHD, and especially when it is untreated. They gauge their symptomology very different because it's it's coming in the context of inattention and hyperactivity issues. And so there's a really big need for something objective that clinicians can use where a patient can take a test and it's not going to be a test that spits out a letter that says like, you know, congratulations, you've got it, or, you know, congratulations, you don't. But what it is going to do is it's going to quantify your symptoms. And this is kind of the world that I work in is that, We quantify the symptoms, hyperactivity, inattention, impulsivity, and say how significant, because we know tons of people have difficulty paying attention. What we want to know with ADHD is it to a clinically significant degree where the impairment is so high that your brain is having difficulty internally regulating the things it needs to do, and it doesn't have the mechanisms to cope or make that better internally. And so what we try to do is we gauge this against people that are your same age and your same sex at birth, because there are biological components to these symptoms. And that helps us say whether or not the symptoms are severe enough. And it gives the doctor something else to look at to say like, okay, I've put clinical history together. It's starting to make sense. The patient is identifying through the rating scales that there are some issues here. And now we've tested the patient to gauge what happens when they are understimulated. Can they sustain attention? What happens to their hyperactivity and what happens to their impulsivity? And is it more severe than we would expect to see, for instance, for a 45-year-old woman, instead of comparing you to 
the 43-year-old male that the doctor just saw an hour before you and had a totally different set of symptoms because these are very, very different manifestations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that I heard was you were talking about the biological differences, which I want to get back to because a topic we talk a lot about on a podcast called Women and ADHD is the differences in terms of how we're socialized uh, and in terms of asking for support, how we're socialized in terms of domestic chores and, you know, the mental load and all of this. So we talk about all of that, but what, what do you, can you talk more about the actual biological differences that you've seen in testing? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot. And, and oftentimes, you know, while women typically tend to be diagnosed with quote, inattentive type ADHD more frequently than males, there is hyperactivity components to female ADHD that look different than male ADHD. It manifests itself differently. And what's important is to quantify those two separately of each other. So male hyperactivity tends to look like, you know, what we see in children, the typical disruption, standing up, unable to stay focused. For women, what we tend to see is a lot more of the small fidgeting components. So shaking or tapping of the leg or fidgeting with various different things. It's more quiet, less disruptive types of hyperactivity. And that's why it's so important to compare these symptoms against other women that may be displaying these symptoms. So for instance, a couple of years back, we took a look at the internal data that we have from um, the QB testing system. So that's the system we work with. It's a computerized test, can be done at home or in the clinic, and it measures hyperactivity, inattention, and impulsivity uh, in patients ages 6 to 60 years old. So we have this really rich set of data that we were able to take a look at. We looked at 120,000 patients, both males and females, between uh, 270 clinics globally. And we tried to look and say, what was the difference within symptomology between the males and the females? And one of the most interesting findings was that in the female population, their severity compared to other females without ADHD was more severe than the male's severity compared to people, other males with ADHD. So it's not that the females had more symptoms than the males, but when they were compared to non-ADHD women, they had a much bigger discrepancy between their impairment than the males did to their non-male to their non-ADHD counterparts. And so this idea that women have less symptoms or less severe symptoms is really uh, outdated. And we really know that women display it differently and we're finding that it's more severe in impairment levels than it is for males. Yeah. And I think why so many women are diagnosed in adulthood speaks a lot to how we're able to manage a lot of these symptoms. And then something happens, a catalyst comes along where we hit our breaking point. For me, it was the pandemic. Sometimes it's babies, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but I also feel like I talk to a lot of women who are perimenopausal who uh, get their diagnosis because they just like can't anymore. Yeah, <laughs> fill in, they just can't blank and you know fill in the blank. Um, and I, we, you know, we often have that conversation where it's like, is it just because I'm a feminist and I just don't want to do it anymore, or is it because I've you know, is it estrogen and all of the hor you know the hormone question becomes such a big one too in terms of like, you know, where are those peaks in terms of diagnoses throughout our lifetime? 
there's something, two interesting elements there, you know, the wear out effect. So this is not in the criteria that clinicians look at is how exhausted and time after time women are reporting this. I am exhausted. I am burnt out. I'm at my breaking point. That's when I arrive at the clinic and it's nowhere in the checklists. That symptomology and those factors are nowhere in the DSM criteria that clinicians utilize, but it's such a significant factor of what helps us identify ADHD in women um, is this burnout factor. They can hang on a lot longer uh, than men tend to be able to hang on with that burnout rate. Um, That same data that we looked at also showed referral rates for testing. So uh, it was really interesting because we looked at young children, adolescents, and adults. And the gap between female referrals and male referrals for testing was huge in the younger population. It gets slightly smaller, but the gap is still significant in adolescents. And by the time we looked at the adult population, the gap which was much closer together. So the referral rates were starting to become more equal. And we're finding that it's really because women are then able to self-refer into the system. They're not being identified as young girls when it isn't easy to self-refer. And we are finding that that burnout is really significant once you get into that older age for women in ADHD. This episode is brought to you by ADHD Online, the only online source I trust for clinically comprehensive evaluations and treatment for ADHD. With ADHD Online's one-of-a-kind assessment, you can start your assessment when you're ready, complete it on your schedule, and get your results from a licensed psychologist in three to five days. Not only will you learn whether or not you have ADHD, you'll also get information about your risk levels for anxiety and depression and other related conditions. ADHD Online believes that mental health care should be streamlined and accessible, so they offer their assessment at a fraction of the price you would pay for traditional evaluations and treatment. Get the help you need without breaking the bank or waiting months or even years for an in-person office visit. As a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can save $20 off your assessment. Simply head to ADHDonline.com slash podcast and use code WOMENADHD20 at checkout. Again, that's ADHDonline.com slash podcast and use code WOMENADHD20 to save $20 when you book your assessment. You can find that link in the episode show notes. At ADHD Online, your comprehensive care is just a click away. This episode is brought to you by Loop Earplugs. Loop earplugs are my ultimate companion to a calmer and more focused life. If you're also an adult with ADHD, autism, or sensory issues, rest assured loop earplugs are designed with us in mind. Whether you're at your favorite coffee shop or in your office cubicle or simply at home with your kids, with their advanced noise reduction technology, loop earplugs gently lower the volume without blocking out the world completely. They're made from soft hypoallergenic materials that are comfortable for extended wear. They fit snugly in your ears, ensuring you can wear them discreetly throughout the day. Plus, they come with a sleek carrying case, making them convenient to take with you wherever you go. Now that I'm in grad school, I love to use the Engage Plus loops whenever I'm walking around campus. They're specifically designed to reduce the level of sound entering my ear without completely blocking out all noise. My teenager loves her quiet loops for studying, and my son loves his Engage Kids loops for short intervals like riding the school bus or taking tests at school. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get 10% off your order when you visit loopearplugs.com slash womenADHD. That's loopearplugs.com slash womenADHD, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Your life, your volume. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I think another conversation that I have a lot, given the what feels like a tremendous increase in diagnoses in adult women over the last three years, and it could just be the fact that it's all I do and think about, but it feels like thanks to TikTok and the pandemic, like it feels like there has been a tremendous increase in self-diagnoses of ADHD. And so then that begs the question, is this actually ADHD or is something else happening? Are we tied to our phones? Are we, is there the trauma of the pandemic? I mean, all of these questions that are leading to like ADHD-like symptoms that then again leads to, you know, a lot of those conversations with doctors that end with just get more sleep, you know, or get a new planner or get a housekeeper or whatever those ways in which there's a lot of that kind of gatekeeping that happens sometimes in the doctor's office. So what are your thoughts? Do you feel like this is really ADHD that we're talking about and there's just been an explosion in awareness or do you feel like maybe something else is going on? Yeah, it's a good question. The answer from my perspective is both yes and no. So I think my half answer is that we are seeing just a rise in awareness. So right now on social media, health influencers are now risen to the number one amount of influencers. So they reach about 1.5 billion people every year. There is a rise in the awareness of it. And I think the more that we start to reduce the stigma and add to the information, women and adult men are also starting to, you know, self-refer into the system. So there is a truth within that. I do think that there's a lot more research that needs to happen related to kind of the situational ADHD. So where you do have a lot of different stressors and distractors that are coming up, you know, even in this, in this conversation that we're having today, I had to make sure that nine different devices were shut down so that nothing popped up as we had a conversation. So there is kind of environmental impact, but I think it's why objective data in the evaluation and treatment process is so important. Because with objective data, you're measuring the brain's ability to regulate that focus and that stimulation over the period, over a course of time. And for people myself, I don't personally have ADHD. When my brain deems something understimulating and boring, it's adding in that extra dopamine that I need. It gets that trigger, it says, wow, she's really bored or dopamine's dropped. It adds in that dopamine for me and I'm able to get myself back on task. And for people with, you know, kind of that, I don't want to say true ADHD, because it it really, I think, is an evolving concept. But this idea that the brain isn't getting the trigger to add in the extra components that it needs to stay on task. And that, for many people, has kind of historic tracking where they can relate to that in adolescence. They can recognize when it happened um, as young children. Mm -hmm. But situationally, it's really intense because everything else is adding in our environment to amplifying how significant it is. So there's, there's, I think, a truth to both elements. Um, but I do believe that there is just the rise in awareness is making us understand that the prevalence rates for ADHD are probably much higher than we realize. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think there is sort of a chicken egg 
scenario, especially with social media, right? With, you know, a lot of the times you'll hear curmudgeons who are sort of like TikTok is causing people to have more ADHD. And you're like, no, people with ADHD just like TikTok because of the scroll and all the dopamine it gets, right? So I'm like, we're like moths to a flame when it comes to certain devices. So is it causing ADHD? No. Is it exacerbating ADHD symptoms? Probably. And that's where I, I feel like I always get back to that same question of like, okay, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a certain type of brain that has difficulty with dopamine regulation? And like you said, there's probably a lot more than five to 10% of us who have this. It's just a matter of, and our coping skills are what then we have to talk about in terms of severity of ADHD. So are we talking about our behaviors in relation to our coping mechanisms or our environment and classrooms and nine to five jobs and all these things that are changing how we behave? Is that what we're talking about in terms of ADHD? Because that feels like it's really manageable and curable. Or is this a brain that needs to be helped with psychotropic medication Because a lot of the time, I feel like many of us, you know, we go, we get our diagnosis, the doctor's like, okay, here's your, here's your prescription. Good luck. And that's the, that's the conversation, right? And then it's up to ourselves to really come up with a treatment plan. Yeah. But I think there's this, there's this sort of pathologization of ADHD in which it does sort of feel like a lot of the time, take this pill and you're cured. And that is, I can attest that's not (laughs) the case. No. And it, you know, the other component of this is that treatment follow-up in this country is really lacking. You know, you oftentimes have to advocate for yourself. Um, And again, there's no standardization in how we measure the treatment. So oftentimes one type of medication or prescription is prescribed at one dose and they say, good luck. Maybe the patient doesn't have a great response to it, doesn't like how it makes them feel. They report it back to their clinician and now it's deemed this type, you know, pharmacological treatment is not an option. And what we really need to start having is a better conversation between the clinician and the providers around what's available, what options. Very often, pharmaceuticals need to be used in conjunction with other support mechanisms for them to be fully successful. But you can also use objective data to drive that treatment process. So you can measure how severe the symptoms are at the time of diagnosis, and have a baseline for where somebody is, how severe their symptoms are. But that same mechanism, that same type of testing can be utilized to measure, okay, you've tried your first trial of, you know, let's say it's not always pharmacological, but it's usually the first line of defense. So you've tried your first trial. How effective was it for you? Some patients do objective data testing and it actually is making their symptoms worse. And that's why they feel terrible on the medication because all of a sudden they're now more hyperactive or they're more distractible and it needs to be honed. And I think we really haven't gotten into a point in our healthcare society where we say this treatment is not a one visit and you're cured or one visit and it didn't work and sorry, your options are just really limited. It's a process that needs a lot of conversation. And, and I think we can do a lot better job standardizing that and using data to drive those decisions so patients feel more confident in what's happening. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't realize, I, I knew, I've heard of QB Tech many times uh, for diagnostics, but I didn't realize that there was like an ongoing kind of quantitative measure. Oh my, for people like me who really geek out on quantitative 
data. I'm like, oh, I need, I, I'm like, I want to, you know, I'm like, can I have it next to my bed and just test myself every day? Uh, <laughs> so, um, so let, so who is using QB Tech? I know, is it GPs? Is it psychiatrists? Is it really anybody who is interested? What has been the reception to QB Tech? Because it's international too, right? It is. It is. So we're a Swedish-based company, um, and we grew really significantly in Europe. We came over to the U.S. in 2012. So we've got FDA clearance for both diagnosis and treatment follow-up. Um, so really great utilization from kind of end-to-end clinical journey for the patient. It's interesting because we've seen a shift. So pre-pandemic, and I've been with the company since 2012, so I, I was one of the first hires here. Um, pre-pandemic, it was largely used by pediatricians. Pediatricians were wanting an additional tool. They felt um, oftentimes ill-equipped to handle the amount of ADHD that was coming into their doors. And um, then the pandemic hit and we saw a massive shift, um, a massive shift over to mental health care providers. So psychiatrists who were inundated with patients, they felt that the caseload was too significant and they needed something to help get them on a standardized process. We've seen a huge influx of nurse practitioners. A lot of um, areas where we talk about these kind of care deserts, where there are not um, professionals in a lot of rural counties. So 90% of counties in the United States do not have a child and adolescent psychiatrist available to them. Um, so we've seen a really big step up in nurse practitioners, uh, physicians assistants, and psychiatrists that are stepping up to try to answer the demand. And that's really who has kind of shifted to a big portion of our clientele. And, it, and they're finding it really, really helpful to not just make them feel confident in who they're helping or who they're diagnosing or that this really is kind of a chicken or the egg, ADHD came first and now it's created all these other symptoms, but helping them to better treat and manage and give the patient something that feels tangible and validated and confirming, or in a lot of cases, non-confirming. It's ruled out ADHD. It said, yeah, you, you know, situationally, you may be feeling X, Y, and Z, but we're not typically seeing the severity levels we see with ADHD. So now let's talk about what else it might be. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's depression, maybe it's other things that are influencing this. So um, I think clinicians are, are really finding it. It's such a critical tool to, to help with this influx. Yeah, I see that. And I see, you know, so many of us are misdiagnosed or, or diagnosed previously with, with depression and anxiety, but also, you know, bipolar too, and, and borderline personality disorder. So it's, these are very different treatment plans that we're talking about here. So yeah, to even be able to rule out ADHD, I think is really important. And I feel like there is a lot of that caution from clinicians who say, well, hold on, don't self-diagnose. It could be something else, but then it just stops there. And you're like, well, what else could it be? <laughs> it feels like this is really, you know, what it is. And are we just going to go back to that, that, you know, so many of us, I think felt very lost or frustrated by the depression and anxiety diagnosis. Cause there's a lot of that, like, well, now what, uh, it's not getting better. Um, and ADHD feels so, it's like a window opening for so many of us. It's such life-changing information that when I feel like there's, I feels like when there is clinical gatekeeping around the diagnosis, it's like, oh God, all right, one more thing I'm wrong about, right? Uh, and so, yeah, just this idea of having something that even a GP could fall back on and, and feel confident with, I think is amazing. 
And I think a lot of times, you know, so our reports are really visual. So they don't just give, you know, like I said, they definitely do not give a yes, no ADHD because it's meant to be used in conjunction with a full assessment. But it does give not only quantitative numbers, here's the severity, but it gives you a visual presentation of what that looks like. And it presents it against a visual presentation of what someone without ADHD looks like. And that profound moment is huge for so many patients because they can finally say like, oh my gosh, like I've been trying to put words to this and I haven't figured out how to put words to this. I didn't know somebody else functions like this. And in the US healthcare system, um, there's a lot of, because patients are in the driver's seat. So you choose who you go to first and you choose who you go to next. And so if a patient arrives at their GP and they feel like their GP does a quick evaluation, it may be the right diagnosis at the end point, but if the patient doesn't feel confident that that was the right one, they're on this exhaustive journey to find the person that's going to explain it to them and give it to them. And it's costly for the patient. It's exhausting to the patient. I'm sure we've all experienced it. It's you know why I got into the industry. And I think objective data is really giving patients some tool to feel confident that their provider is on the right track or to feel confident that I have felt like it might be this and it's really not feeling like it is. Now let me address these other components in my life that that I may need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> um. <laughs> it's a heavy topic and a fun one. It's like one of my favorite things to talk about because I think there is there is so much hope and this industry now COVID as the catalyst has just spiraled it forward. And I think patients starting to to vocalize how exhausted they feel is a huge driver. And I think, you know, that was a question for myself and a lot of us, which is how do you even quantify the struggle, right? Which is, well, maybe it's all in my head, or maybe if I just tried harder, you know, so much of that of like not even realizing how much you are struggling until you stop, you know, it's like we're playing whack-a-mole so much that oftentimes we don't get a chance to sit and reflect as to whether this is, you know, typical or not. And, oh, and the other thing I wanted to add too was the wait list too. I think with so many GPs referring out, you know, especially in the UK and Australia, even like, you know, places that have better, um, public healthcare than the U.S. <laughs> One of the nice things about the broken U.S. system is how quickly we will find a private <laughs> clinician. There's a lot of pros and cons, for sure. I know, right? Uh, but, you know, in the U.K., it's like a four-year wait list now because I think GPs just don't want to do deal with it, right? I think there's a fear there. Um, and so to have some to have a tool that will be able to allow more clinicians at, you know, uh, like first, not first responders, but you know what I mean? Like that first uh, initial intake session, have that be a little more productive than just say, all right, we'll add you to the list. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting component. So uh, QB Tech actually in the UK just received um, a pretty awesome award for healthcare innovation for some work that we did in the NHS system. So QB test was added in 130 sites and they looked at the utilization because like you said, they've got three, four, five year wait lists. That's just to get a diagnosis. There's even an additional wait to get proper treatment. So patients could be using not just years of their life, but years of their education in going undiagnosed and untreated, even if they've identified it and gotten in the system. 
And what we found in the evaluation was that um, it freed up clinicians' time nearly 30%. So it made clinicians more efficient in getting through the diagnosis because they were able to have a little bit more concrete data at the front end of the evaluation process. So they were able to get patients in and through quicker and it reduced wait times and wait lists at the various different clinics up to 55%. So when we're talking about even just clinical efficiency, objective data makes clinicians feel more confident and helps them standardize to get patients through the system in a more efficient way. And that used to not be the case in the United States prior to the pandemic. Wait lists weren't as long. You know, you could go two to four weeks and get into a, a specialist. You try to get into a specialist today and you're waiting two to four months. Um, so we're seeing that really significantly increase even in our healthcare system that previously didn't have those issues. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the big shift too has been availability of virtually for people in rural communities, right? Who didn't have access to specialists. And now suddenly it's like they're the ability to get this, not only get this information online, but then also seek treatment. I think there's just more people who are, feel like they have options than perhaps before. Yeah. And I think you know, the, the healthcare uh, area in telehealth is really looming because, you know, the DEA and the FDA have some big decisions that they are trying to make about whether or not we will continue this telehealth access past November, because it was an exception during the pandemic. And I think a lot of patients benefited from that. When you couldn't find a specialist in your area, you did have access to a qualified healthcare professional. Um, and objective data like QB test can be done remotely in a virtual platform. So QB Tech was actually just invited to the FDA listening sessions last week, where they are looking for solutions to try to figure out how can we continue to offer telehealth visits and telehealth treatment options for ADHD patients um, and what are some solutions that are out there. And we were one of 61 guests that were invited to speak um, on behalf of, of ADHD patients. So hopefully these, these availability of providers will continue to remain. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know. Such a fascinating time, right? <laughs> a lot moving, a lot evolving. Every month it feels like something in ADHD is changing. Well, and I, especially with the online, you know, not only the online diagnoses, but then also the online mental health providers. And so there's like, you know, people are having more access to this, but also doubting the quality, right? I had a client recently who got a diagnosis through one of the online companies, which I'm not going to mention, but even though she got the diagnosis, she needs to get medication from her GP. And she's worried that the GP isn't going to respect the diagnosis because it was online, which it's not unfounded, right? Like there is a lot of that doubt uh, right now in terms of like, are we just paying, you know, is this just a pill mill? Are we just paying for these? That's the disconnect. So, you know, that is my, my family's struggle as well. And why I got into it is like, you as a patient have to piece that together. So here she paid for this evaluation. And, you know, if, if the quality was high and it was the right diagnosis, she now has to take that information and go find who's going to listen to it and who's going to help her on the next step. And I think it's so important that we start to push for like universalized data where that clinician that she goes to knows what he's being handed, knows where it's coming from, knows the quality level. Um, and, and the patient doesn't have to work so hard to put together their team of providers. Um, and, and we really struggled with that personally within our family of, you know, 
my, my mother had to quit her job and focus full time on putting a care team together for my brother to ensure success. And it just, it shouldn't be that hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think even just knowing what the treatment plan is, is a full-time job sometimes, right? In terms of like, what do I need most in this moment? Now you worked with Ned Hallowell at some point, right? I did. I did actually. So he was an advisor to the clinic um, that I helped uh, create around this concept. So it was called the Attention Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, And it was around this concept that the entire multidisciplinary team, everything an ADHD patient should need, should be under one roof. And Dr. Hallowell was a, a key factor in putting together who are those right components Um, And he was a great advisor to the clinic because he's also done this in his various different clinics and setups, used objective data to get a strong ADHD diagnosis, and then made sure that all of the care team, whether it was an ADHD coach or a therapist or um, a prescribing clinician or someone who did, you know, more expansive testing was all under one roof, talking to each other and communicating to each other about the care of the patient but unfortunately, those types of clinics are so few and far between. So, um, but when you find them, it's a it's a beautiful diamond in the rough. <laughs> I know, right? It feels like this like dream of like a bright white, you know, room, and you walk in, and some angel holds your hand. I- I'm picturing like I'm picturing Ben Hallowell like in a white suit, like uh, the guy from Love Boat, right? <laughs> <laughs> and like just somebody holding your hand and bringing you, and be like, here's the diagnosis, and now we're gonna move on to the you know medication and titration. And then we're going to move on to therapy and do, you know, accountability, all of that stuff, like just having somebody because it is, it's just so much work. And, you know, this is an executive function issue for us. Like we just getting the diagnosis is traumatic. So like all of those steps, it really, it feels so necessary. I know Ned, Ned would love to hear that he was in a white coat floating and helping patients through the process for sure. Um, and I think that's speaking to something because, you know, Dr. Hallowell was one of the, the first early people in the 90s to like grab the hands of patients and say like, it's fine. It's awesome. It's a gift. Um, so it is, it is this idea that, you know, it, there's a really positive aspect to this. Um, and so I think he would, he would love the concept that he was, you know, floating through the clinics, helping patients. <laughs> it, but it's true. He really was the kind of uh, pioneer in terms of mindset, right? And how important mindset and self-regard and positive regard uh, is in terms of living with ADHD, which I think, you know, before that, I don't know if he was the first person to do that, but it does feel like there was a real shift from you outgrow this, you just need to, you know, this is something you need to work on in childhood and let's, you know, just get your act together uh, to much more of a sense of like, this is how you move through the world. There's nothing wrong with you. (laughs) Yes. Driven to distract him was profound for so many parents. And it was in our own personal household of finding some sort of path or somebody that understood that like, no, my child is awesome. Or my, you know, my daughter is awesome, but we've just got to hone X, Y, and Z. And he was also one of um, kind of the first early users of objective data in the evaluation process. So really important to try to identify it and get it right in the beginning and use data-driven decisions to then guide this treatment path that led a lot of patients to success. So I think that was, it was definitely an early catalyst. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, God, I feel so validated geeking out with you about all this. 
I love when somebody really knows their stuff. Like it's so great. I've been around the world. I've been from the kind of the patient perspective. And I think, you know, I've been behind the clinic side. So trying to create this clinic, which in the U.S. is sometimes hard because insurance drives so much of what happens for patients and where they go. You've talked about um, your children uh, receiving kind of that expansive testing, which if you want school accommodations is really important to understand, you know, the, the Wexler and all those various different types of tests. But adults don't need that type of kind of full evaluation oftentimes. They're not looking for maybe necessarily work accommodations where that type of data could could drive it, but they are looking for something that helps quantify and put into perspective what they've been doing. Um, and I think that's so important. Right. The validation aspect for sure. Um, now I'm curious, are, are there like, I don't know, even know if you can tell me, but are there like countries where clinicians are more resistant to, <laughs> to this sort of testing? Cause I feel like there are definitely pockets of Europe where they're like, no, ADHD doesn't exist here. <laughs> there are definitely pockets of that. Um, there are definitely pockets of that. And I do think that there are some uh, tech-focused clinicians in those countries that are really trying to call to action um, something that helps to validate it. Because I do think a lot of those countries, they feel that way oftentimes because the evaluation has been so subjective previously checklists and quick sign-offs. And so there isn't a lot to validate it. So hopefully we'll start to make progress in more of those countries. What I will say is a cultural difference in Europe, um, and we can use uh, the NHS, for instance, as, as an example. The cultural difference is that there is more need for consensus across different types of clinicians to achieve a diagnosis. So that is oftentimes what will slow down the process, that it's not just a doctor that signs off, but the psychologist needs to agree as well. And we have to have a long evaluation period to understand and make sure that we're really getting this drilled down and correct. Whereas in the U.S., my European colleagues used to sometimes be shocked at the fact that, you know, they go, how long would it take to get a diagnosis? They said, sometimes a day, you know, you could arrive at your clinician and you can leave with a prescription. And there's pros and cons to that. I think if we can start to make that evaluation more robust in the evaluation process, we can ensure that we're getting the diagnosis correct a lot better. And it doesn't necessarily need to take expansive amounts of time, but we need to make sure that it's around a lot of data and it's data-driven if we are evaluating in a shorter period of time. So I would say that's the biggest difference between various different countries is that um, there's a lot more need for consensus of multiple clinicians because it's in a kind of single payer healthcare system where our healthcare system is a lot more complex. Yeah. Interesting. So your challenge is to make the testing more robust yet at the same time, more accessible. <laughs> and more efficient. We want it to, you know, not take too much time for the patient, but take enough time that we are positive the data is strong. Um, and that's our sweet spot. So our test takes, uh, if you're a child or adolescent, it takes 15 minutes. And if you're an adolescent or adult, so 12 and older, it takes 20 minutes. Um, and we found this to be a really good sweet spot where we can test the duration of attention long enough to have enough data to really help to secure um, a, a really valid uh, set of information for the doctor. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, 
coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So now as a patient, how can I make sure more doctors are using this test? Do we just ask for it as patients? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yes, of course. You know, we would we would love that. I think there's kind of two ways. You can search for QB test, QB tech providers. Um, there are tons out there. We exist in 42 states, um, so we have a huge provider network. Um, so most likely, you can find somebody. We have uh, telehealth capabilities as well. So if you're, let's say, in rural Alabama you have a lot of care options because you have a really massive amount of clinicians doing in-clinic testing and ones that are doing telehealth uh, testing as well. So you can search for somebody. We also have, we pair um, with a group called the ADHD Expert Consortium. So this is a group of different types of clinicians that have come together across the U.S. We've been really fortunate to work and support them. They have a call to action uh, that you can find on um, either our website or ADA, which is the adult uh, ADHD patient organization, um, also hosts it where you can actually add your signature um, to say that we want to, you know, I stand behind adding more robust data and better validation tools for clinicians. Um, And we're using that at all different levels. Um, We're using that within our congressional conversations that we're having, um, having conversations alongside the DEA to say, you know, this is something that the patients are calling for. So you can search for it. You can try to find a clinician that has it and you will uh, uh, be very uh, high likelihood to find it. Or you can um, add your voice behind the ADHD Expert Consortium and sign the petition. 
Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll put a link to the petition in the show notes too. So head there. That's fantastic. Uh, gosh, this is amazing. I'm thank you so much. This is so great. I had was so excited. I've you know I've obviously I've heard of QB Tech, but had already gotten my diagnosis, so it was sort of felt like it was just this wonderful something to keep track of. But also, I think you know it it answers so many of the questions that so many of us have in terms of this process and what is difficult about this process and just even obtaining the diagnosis. And and for so many women, it's just like, well, you know, I, I've heard women whose doctors are like, well, you've made it this far. Why bother get with a diagnosis, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, just there seems like there's such a disconnect in terms of how important and validating this diagnosis is. And the fact that we don't view it as pathological, right? We don't see this diagnosis. Um, as, uh, you know, and I always joke, like when you tell other people with ADHD, you've been diagnosed, they're all like, yay, congratulations. Whereas when you tell people who don't know about it, they're like, I'm sorry about your disorder. <laughs> it is, I think, really interesting to see just how many barriers we are met with as somebody who has, you know, okay, maybe I'm self-diagnosing and I don't, I need the validation and then going to a doctor and being told, you know, a myriad of reasons why it's probably not that. Um, so yeah, I think this is, this is the, this is the triple A card that I need in my wallet. This is exactly what I always say I want. Well, I hope patients feel, you know, technology is evolving, acceptance of technology is evolving, and well-validated technology is evolving. So hope is out there. Validation is out there. There are really fantastic providers that are leading the way and companies that are trying to really make a, a big step for patients to say, you know, this can be easier. So hopefully, hopefully everyone feels positively about that. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Is there any? I th- oh, and then the other thing I wanted to ask just quickly was like, uh, you were talked about therapists and mental health counselors using this as part of their diagnostic tool, which I think so. Is is this a scenario in which like a therapist would you would would perform the test, and then you would take this test to uh, somebody you know, whoever can prescribe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we have a lot of therapists that connect with various different clinicians um, to utilize the testing done within their office for clinical treatment, but also using it for um, clinical care on the therapy side, understanding how severe is the patient's symptomology? Is this really what we're dealing with? Or do we need to do therapy for um, anxiety and depression and other disorders? Um, so using it to guide the clinical decision, but then also using it to say, you know, let's start to try to implement some things that can help to reduce the anxiety around this and, and put some executive function components together that hopefully make a difference. That's great. You know, I'm actually, I'm gone back to grad school. I'm uh, getting my uh, clinical mental health counselor degree. And it's funny because I'm like, we're reading through all of these case studies and every one of these case studies where it's like the client has depression and anxiety. I'm like, I don't know. sounds like ADHD and autism to me. (laughs) And I just look, I feel like I'm diagnosing every case study with ADHD and autism. And I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) maybe I'm looking for it in places it isn't. But then I'm also like, or maybe that's, maybe it's just that underdiagnosed. I don't know. The nice part is, is you'll start to both from the patient perspective and the clinician perspective, understand how to kind of chip away at the, uh, the components that could mask that. And, uh, you know, hopefully data is also coming to the master's level clinicians as well. Yeah, exactly. I hope so. Um, but just also just how varied and holistic the treatment protocol is, uh, for every person. 
Ah, well, thank you. Oh my goodness, this was awesome. I'm so, I really, really was so excited to pick your brain and I was just glad you were up for anything. So <laughs> thank you so much you. for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, I love the work that you're doing for all of your listeners in giving them validation and support. I think it's, uh, it's a huge lift, uh, but also probably a great outlet for your creativity. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, McCall. Thank you. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.